Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is the Pulitzer Prize-winning composer and Steinway artist, John Corleano. His complete solo piano recordings are forthcoming from pianist Philip Fisher on Naxos Records. John, let's talk first about finding your musical language, which I think in a way is a de rigueur question for 20th and 21st century composers. Your father was concertmaster at the New York Philharmonic, who you say eventually came around to you being a composer. Right. So he came around when he played your violin sonata. Right. Your mother was a piano teacher. So while there was a classical foundation there, you came more to composing in high school and in college. Is that correct? Well, the thing is that my mother taught piano, so I uh, never really studied the piano because she taught piano to all the neighborhood kids. And uh, I had two lessons with her in a huge fight. And that meant that I never learned to play, for example, the scales. I still don't know what finger do you put on A flat for an A flat major scale. Spoiler, it's the second finger. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then how do you switch around? Two, three, four. Yep. Two, three, thumb, two, three, thumb, oh, two, two, three. Two, three, thumb. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah, that's, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> I don't know how to do those things, but I improvised always from a, a, a little kid. And I loved improvising. And uh, I still do occasionally. And one of the piano pieces that has been recorded was written. Ursula Oppens commissioned me to write a piano piece. And I said, Ursula, I want to try something out. I want to try improvisations that I put in a MIDI and then I have an assistant transcribe for me and they will be the pieces. And I decided to name it Winging It because I was so out of my element in a sense doing it this way. It was not my usual way of composing. And I did that. 75 or some inspirational improvisations with recording them. And I picked the ones I liked, and made it into a suite of piano pieces for her. And it was really fun. Uh, I remember when I got the last one, the really fast one, I was in the American Academy in Rome just before they were calling for lunch, and I was trying to improvise, and I just did it, and it went straight through to the end, and it was complete. And I said, I have it now. And I went and had a fabulous lunch and felt that I had really accomplished something. Uh, but it's strange. And new for me. Let's stay with winging it for a second. I loved those pieces. Very meditative, mm -hmm. really languid and beautiful. And the middle one is like seven and a half minutes of an improvisation straight through with no notes changed at all. And it has a kind of organization that I just did instinctively. I did, And that's what I think I can refer to when you say finding your own language. Your instinctual moves as a composer, the choices you make on the way you space a chord, the way you go from one chord to the other, that's your personal style. And it comes as you grow, because you keep on taking on more and more information, and your computer brain kind of mixes it around and comes out with something new. And this improvisation is something I would have been happy to compose, but it would have taken me a month. So I was overjoyed to see that I could do that in some way, just improvise into the piano.
So you're saying because of the the use of the MIDI and the ability to capture that and not have to take a step to notate it, right? That gave you the freedom. Well, you know, composing is really means to compose is to look at and improve. I mean, if you look at Beethoven, mm. uh, he's the ultimate of that. His sure. sketches and the way he agonized over things and very often started with something not very good and then slowly made it into something absolutely great. A lot of ink blots on those scores. Yes, yes. Uh, That's composing. Improvisation is what happens in the moment. And that's what I was capturing for the first time. And it was very difficult to notate because I didn't use a click track, which is the easy way of doing it, because I had mixed meters and all sorts of other things. And so the person transcribing this had to figure out the voice leading, and I worked on it with him, of course, and what each measure is. Is it five eighths? Is it three quarters? What is it? And that took a lot of time to put them together and make an exact reproduction. Uh, But I kind of enjoyed it a lot. Is that a process you returned to with other works? I've never done that. Mm. Never, Mm. ever, in anything. Because composing, for me, is a lot of pre-planning. When I compose a piece, I try to envision the whole piece and what I want to do in the whole piece and build a structure that has variety and repetition and contrasts. And that really, for a long piece, you really have to do. You can improvise a three or four minute piece, but you can't do a 30 minute you know, symphony or something like that. You have to organize it. So it's a totally different process for me. I have to get an idea of what I want to say. I have to plan out how I want to do it. My first symphony, for example, I had to write the ending first. It was about my friends who died of AIDS. And I had to kind of first say to myself, what am I going to tell people through this symphony? What am I tell them to go away with? It's obviously anguished, full of pain and love. But what at the end do I say to them? And I wanted to tell them that the memories of people who died will keep them alive. And I tried to search for a musical version of the stars, for example, of infinity, of everness. And I came across the idea of ocean waves that were there before man ever took a foot on the ground. And so I actually planned the whole piece, starting from the first movement, but in the last movement I planned it with the brass surrounding the orchestra and the trumpet at the far back, and then more trumpets and more trumpets, and horns, three, 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 trombones, trombones, and tuba, so I could start a wave of sound in one trumpet, slowly make it move out in chordal fashion to the last one, and as it reaches the last one, the first one is making another wave. Now, that had to be done before I wrote the symphony. So if I didn't plan that way, I wouldn't be able to have changed the orchestration by having, number one, more brass than usual, and putting them in unusual positions, uh, which gave me a lot of other opportunities. There's something important, too, in the process you're elucidating there, and that is you know where you want to get to, but you don't know exactly how you're going to get there. Mm -hmm. And that, I would imagine, allows your creative process to flourish. Uh, Flourish is not really the word. (laughs) (laughs) I would substitute the word anguish. When I compose, I am really battling my insecurities, my 
visions of myself as not having any ideas and not knowing what to do. And I have to overcome all this to write something because when you don't have um, an inspiration, it isn't there. And I need actually material that's inspired for me to have craft. Some people say, well, just use your technique, your craft. But I really can't do that because for me, the first thing is the craft comes with the inspiration. Once I have an idea, I know how to orchestrate it. I know what to do with it. I know how to bring it to fruition. But until then, I'm in a sea of insecurity and wandering. And it's tough. I really don't like it. I like having composed, but composing is no fun at all. Is that part of the curse of having a great ear? You you know when you've found the right sound, but but you also know when it's not there? Yeah, partly. I wouldn't say great ear. I would say <laughs> that you're able to, to imagine things that are not there. Uh. I mean, one of the things that freed me up as a composer, my piano concerto is not like that because I wrote that in my 20s. But later on when I composed was the idea that I would, I would not be bound by five lines of a staff, A, B, C, D, E, F, G of the alphabet with flats and sharps. I would simply think of ideas. And when I think of those ideas, I would then find a way to make those ideas happen in music. And that's very often a very tricky but exciting thing to do. So that's a bit of an evolution of your language there. Absolutely. Freeing yourself from notation. Paul Lansky uh, said notation is a trap. Mm -hmm. Did you find that that was eventually the case for you? Well, yes, I did, actually, in the 70s. In, in the 70s, what happened is I discovered the works of Christoph Penderewski. Penderewski is a, was, he just died recently, a Polish composer. And in the 1960s, he found that he could change and develop and invent his own kinds of notation that would free the performers to play more easily, more virtuosically, and make incredible sounds and sonorities. And I learned from that. And some of his things are universal now. For example, if you have a whole first violin section of, say, 16 people, and you put an arrow up for the value of a half note, that means they hold the highest note they can for that half note. It also means that it's going to be a cluster of sound up there because nobody's hitting the same note. So the complexity of sound that results is actually very intense, but the notation is very simple, and the players play it in a very simple way. If you want to write out for 16 people, divisi, all the various highest notes that they have to hit, it would be extremely complex and difficult, and you get the same sound. And I learned from that. And I've invented some of my own notations. The thing is, they have to be taught. The difficult part about some of this new notation is that it's easy to play, and players who are used to reading the most complex pieces standardly notated are befuddled by it and sometimes resent it. Because if you take an orchestra like the New York Philharmonic, they can play the most complex piece at sight, as long as it's in standard notation. You give them something with a new notation, they have to learn it the same way a high school orchestra would, and that some of them don't like it. They say, you know, I, I, I can play the most difficult Schoenberg piece, and I don't have any problem. But here I am having to learn to do something. On the other hand, it's very freeing. And once they get it, um, they feel exhilarated, the ones that will go along with this, 
feel exhilarated by the idea that they, they are free to make certain choices. Not every choice, but certain choices. And it frees them as performers. And I think it's also a great reminder that the notation, the score, is not the music itself. Exactly, exactly. The score is a blueprint, and there are many ways of making that blueprint. You know, when Bach started in in the Baroque period, they didn't write a lot of dynamics and phrases and what string you play the violin on, etc. They just wrote the notes and occasional forte in a piano. And then you get you know, down into the classical period and the romantic period. And from forte and piano, it comes to four Fs and five Ps, as <laughs> Tchaikovsky would do, and all sorts of articulations of up bow, down bow, et cetera, et cetera, for the orchestra, how you tongue something, your brass instrument. And what happened in the 20th century was it got so perfect that some composers actually notated the performers out of mm-hmm their job as being artists Mm -hmm. and made them into kind of machines that just had to read everything that was there and not do anything else. And that was a very bad thing for everybody concerned. In a way, it sounds like we're talking about the rise and fall of control. Yes, yes. Control, look look at Beethoven and Mozart and piano concertos and things. They improvised the piano concerto cadenzas. They also ornamented things very often that were just lines. Um, that freedom was expected and loved. And then it went away. And then the performers now don't know how to improvise necessarily and don't know what to do with something new. And so the way I look at it, give them back some freedoms. For example, let them play a phrase of music without watching the conductor freely while the conductor is holding some sort of chord and letting something else come in and just give them a thing and say rubato and let them play a beautiful melody. Well, it's very freeing for the performer then to make really beautiful music. Let's talk about writing for the piano versus writing for orchestra. I wonder if the process for you changes of composing for piano versus composing for orchestra. Does the thinking change? Does the landscape change? Well, not really. I'll tell you the good thing about my not being a trained pianist is that I don't do the expected things that solve problems. And I have to put my hands on the keys and work them back and forth to make the music I want. And very often that takes kind of the way to some kinds of sounds that are quite unusual or techniques of runs that are unusual. I remember Samuel Barber, who was a dear friend of mine, when he was writing his piano concerto, the last movement of the concerto which now is in 5-8, originally was in 6-8, he wrote the whole last movement because he found a way of playing seconds, that's two notes adjacent seconds, up a scale, the whole scale. Mm. And it was a tricky fingering thing where his thumb would often press two white keys and then his second and third finger would do two black keys and his thumb would take over. And because he got this run, he wrote the theme, bum, 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 that theme with all seconds in it so that he could then have that run.
So very often what happens with me is I will hit upon something my hands do that is very pianistic, but not part of the arpeggio and scalar kinds of writing that are easy for a pianist, but not for me. Mm. And so my music is very pianistic, but it's not always pianistic in the way that trained pianist composers are. When you write for the piano, do you sit at the piano? Absolutely. And for orchestra as well? Not necessarily. So you want to be very hands-on so you can really put yourself in the in the player's position with that instrument. Absolutely. Absolutely. The piano has to be written at the piano. I mean, it's such a remarkable instrument, capable of so much. I mean, if you look at some of Bartok's music, you can see how he did the same kind of thing. He put his hands on the piano. And a lot of the figures, the clusters, the seconds, and so forth, came out as to how his hands fell on the piano. Mm-hmm. So his music got a very interesting personality that was not like other composers of his day because he was getting it out of the instrument and not getting it out of piano playing. Mm. Yeah, very interesting results, therefore. Let's talk about your Fantasia on an ostinato, which I was very taken with. It plays with the theme of the slow movement of Beethoven's seventh. And like winging it, I enjoyed it for its meditative nature. I wonder if you could tell me a bit about your thinking behind that piece. Absolutely. Well, first of all, it was commissioned by the Van Cliburn competition. They used to commission a composer every year. Sam wrote a piece, Lenny wrote a piece, you know, and I was commissioned to write a piece. And so the first question I asked myself is, what can this piece do that all the other pieces that they are playing, these young pianists, can't do? They have wildly technical things, And do I need to do that? (laughs) They have beautiful lyrical lines. Do I need to do that? What I really need to do is see if I can find a way of testing the pianist's imagination in building the structure. That is how, if they were given certain liberties and other ones were written in and certain freedoms, how would they react? And so I took the theme of the second movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, which is an ostinato. Repeated means comes from the word obstinate. It's a repeated figure. Bum, 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 bum. Most of you know that. It's a very famous idea. It repeats for four and a half minutes, just adding layers of melody above it, but the same thing. And in a funny way, it like the Apocalypse Canon and this and Ravel's Bolero, they're kind of precursors to minimalism. Mm. That is, they repeat the same idea over and over again, but constantly make little changes in it. And I said to myself, what would happen if I took that idea and I built a piece that used that theme in various ways, and I wrote the beginning of the piece and the end of the piece, and then I wrote a whole series of interlocking repeats to the climax of the piece, in which the pianist would choose how many times to repeat each figure. Sometimes the figure was between two hands. Other times, one hand was playing and noodling on something, and the other one would change a figure and move, and the left hand would do that, and they would both do it, and slowly build a huge crescendo to a climax to the Beethoven finally coming in in its original shape. And I figured this would probably take about 12 or 13 minutes to perform. And what happened at the competition, and the audience was part of this because there was an audience at the semifinals, is that pianists played it very differently. The timings came from seven minutes to 20 minutes. (laughs) 
uh, which is an incredible change. And some of it, you could tell every four pulses, they change to something else. Every four pulses, they change to something else. But they hadn't really worked out how to build this. And some of them were absolutely wonderful. The winner of the contemporary piece uh, competition was Barry Douglas, who is a fantastic pianist and went on to record my piano concerto with Leonard Slatkin. And that piece, when it's played, is a piece, it's meditative, but it also is a piece, unlike minimalism, that builds to a real climax and recapitulates material and has a real ending, very ending Beethoven wrote in the symphony. It gets played a lot, and it's always very different. And I love the idea that pianists have these liberties and that how they build a piece is very much what you come away with. I don't know whose recording you have. Manny Axe has done it. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, Helene Grimaud has done it. A lot of pianists have performed it, and they'll all be very different. Unlike, say, a say a movement of a Beethoven sonata, in which pretty much you know what's going to happen, but there are subtle details along the way. Mm. This is different. You really feel like it's a different piece when people measure out the number of repeats and the number of non-repetitions. That's fascinating. And again, we see these steps toward artistic freedom by permitting pianists to control their destiny a bit. Absolutely. I believe in that. Let's turn to the piano concerto, because I've always seen piano concertos as this balancing act between orchestra, soloist, and conductor. I wonder if you share that notion of this sort of holy trinity. And this was, of course, a long time ago when you penned your piano concerto. But if that relationship of conductor, orchestra, and soloist guided the output there. Well, actually, for me, it's more the soloist versus everyone else. (laughs) So it's a warlike state. Well, it's not war, but it's who is going to rise above. Mm. And the reason I feel that way is because I went every season to the Philharmonic and heard my father play concertos. And, you know, he, he had this 15-inch piece of wood called a violin. <laughs> and there were 18 firsts and 16 seconds and violas and cellos and trumpets and horns and percussion and, and winds. And yet he had to sail above all that. And it has to do with the writing. Of course, the composer has to be smart enough to write it in such a way that the soloist can play and somehow rise above that. But it also is the temperament of the idea of the soloist versus the others. And I have that as a part of my DNA. I love writing concertos because I really feel that because I grew up that way. I grew up with the tension of sitting in the green room because I was too nervous at the age of seven and eight and 10 to go out in the hall and hear my father play. I would hear the speakers in Carnegie Hall in the green room and I would sit hunched over waiting for the difficult passages and then straightening up when he did them well and hunching over for the next one. Mm-hmm. So the virtuoso is very much part of my whole being. And in fact, um, I had worked with Vladimir Horowitz, um, who I loved. He was a wonderful man. We were friends. I was working with him because in 1965, he had this comeback uh, after 12 years of not playing. And we did a television show. And I worked on the television show. And we went to his house a lot. And he, I brought my, my concerto over. He was sight reading it at Temple. And while he was sight reading it, he was telling me what a wonderful sight reader he was. He said, you think Rubenstein could do this? No, no. And meanwhile, he's playing like the ultimate virtuoso. And he said, I would play this piece. He said, this is Russian. And what he meant was dramatic and theatrical. And he loved the piano writing. 
And so, you know, it's, it's part of my life is, is that. And in my 20s, I had a lot of energy and wrote a huge concerto for piano, a four-movement piano concerto uh, with large orchestra. And I'm very happy I did that. I don't know if I have the energy to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about teaching for a moment, because you have taught a lot of guys who are notable composers today. Absolutely. Eric Whitaker, mm-hmm. Nico Muley, John Mackey, Avner Dorman, Mason Bates, to name a few. We've had Bates and Whitaker on this podcast. What would you like to take credit for teaching them? Um, how to be their own teacher. That is what I need for myself as a composer. How to, in other words, step back and get perspective. Because the real problem in composing is that while you're composing something, it seems like that is the only way it can go. And so you get stuck and you never say, hmm, maybe back about 20 bars, I should have gone in those direction. You never do that because they're written and they seem to be therefore correct. And so you get stuck. And the job of a teacher, I think, is to say, well, is that the only choice you have to make? It's very much like a psychiatrist. You know, a psychiatrist, someone comes in, this man comes in and he says, you know, I fight with my wife and she says this and I say this. And then the psychiatrist says, is that the only answer you could have given to that? Could you perhaps made another choice? And so hopefully when that man and his wife have a a discussion, it doesn't escalate because he takes stock of that and says, I can do something else. Well, it's like that in composing. I like to show them that they can make other choices and teach them how to sit back and make them themselves when they're not studying with me. I think this brings us back again to Beethoven because, you know, I think what we're also talking about here is not being wedded to one course of action, one single idea. And Beethoven, there was a guy who knew how to throw away ideas. Yeah. I mean, he's my favorite of all composers ever. And uh, I just finished writing three cadenzas for his violin concerto. I was commissioned by Ani Akiko Myers, and I loved it because I love that piece so much. It's amazing to see the sketches and actually his manuscript, which is kind of scary because it's so sloppy. But in addition to that, there are so many ideas that he crossed off, so many things he changed, and everything that comes out at the end sounds like he just came out with it, that it was so free and, and spontaneous, but it wasn't. He really struggled, and I do that too. I say there are two kinds of composers. There are the Mozarts or the Beethoven. Sure. <laughs> you know, sure. The Mozarts, equally great composer, but you know. Pristine, pristine handwriting. <laughs> and you want a piece? Okay, I'll give it to you t- tomorrow night. And there it is, 30-minute long piece. The one draft wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he had no problems. He, he wrote tons and tons of music, some of it less successful than others, but also some of the great masterpieces. Whereas Beethoven really only wrote masterpieces because he censored everything out. Uh, so I unfortunately have the Beethoven uh, gene in my body. I, I wish I had the Mozart because I'd have more fun composing. That said, John, you've had a long, successful, accoladed career, particularly for a composer today, perhaps even a career that's barely possible now. What have you learned over the course of a lifetime spent in music? And what do you hope to leave as your legacy? Well, I think my students are a lot of my legacy. I'm so proud of them. I, I mean, I'm really thrilled with them. And they've all become friends. It's not that they leave and go away forever. They call me on the phone and they're having a problem. One of them describing a piece and I brainstorm it a little bit. I think that's a great legacy that I'm very, very proud of. And I have my pieces. And luckily, I have one publisher, unlike many 
composers that went around to several. Mm. And that publisher, like Sam Barber, that publisher has all my music, G. Shermer. And so I know they will protect me when I'm gone and do the best they can to invite people to continue performing my music. I've just finished, not just, but months ago, I finished an opera that's going to be performed this summer um, in Santa Fe. Probably will happen because it's an open-air theater. And so we think that might take place. And this is only your second opera, John. Is that right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It took me 12 years to write the first one and about 10 years to write this one. I'm a very slow composer. <laughs> That's one reason. It's, it's enormous for me to write a piece of that length and put it together the way I want it put together. But, you know, I take a year and a half to write a symphonic work. That's the way it goes. I'm slow. But at the end, I'm very happy that I wrote it. And Philip Fisher is set to release the complete solo piano of John Corleano on Naxos. Right. So I'll certainly be looking forward to that. John, thank you so much for speaking with me. Total pleasure. Total pleasure. You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Winging It by John Corleano, performed by Ursula Oppens on CD Records. From John Corleano's Symphony No. 1, performed by the National Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Leonard Slatkin on RCA. And we heard Steinway artist Keith Jarrett perform a bit of Samuel Barber's Piano Concerto Opus 38 on ECM Records. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Our outro music is from John Corleano's Fantasia on an Ostinato, performed by Steinway artist Emmanuel Axe. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard, or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Thank you for listening.